It's time to head out on the front porch on KFRM. Grab your favorite drink, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation on the front porch. Hi, this is Kyle Bauer, your host today on On the Front Porch. My guest is Forrest Galante. I got to hear Forrest speak uh, at a conference a few months ago, and I was quite interested in his past life. He grew up as a farm kid in Zimbabwe and then uh, was forced to leave that. Forrest, uh, you are a wildlife biologist. Uh, how is it you spend your days these days, and where do you live? Absolutely, Kyle. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. Um, I live in Santa Barbara, California. It's a beautiful area of California on the coast that couldn't be further from uh, what life was like in Zimbabwe. And my days are an eclectic mix. Some days I'm at home writing grants or working on um, certain kind of research projects for the show that I do for Animal Planet. And other days, the majority of my time is spent out in the field um, and that would involve, you know, going on excursions around the world where I have an emphasis in uh, recent extinctions, and I'm working on animals around the globe that have uh, been declared extinct. And what is the show called on Animal Planet? My show is called Extinct or Alive. Well, um, you've got an interesting journey on how you got there. Um, so you've you literally traveled the entire world looking for extinct species. That's correct. So how do you get your leads on that? How, uh, who sends you to these different places? Uh, well, Animal Planet, of course, is the one that sends me. Um, but before Animal Planet was sending me, I was doing it uh, on my own accord. And, um, you know, how we get our leads is very complicated. It's a process of, or it's a series of um, elimination, really. And what we do is we factor in, are there local how soon was the extinction event? You know, when was the animal declared extinct? How was it declared extinct? Who's gone and looked for it before or after then or when it was declared extinct? Is there ample habitat? Is there sufficient prey sources? Um, you know, is the environment friendly enough for the creatures to, to still be there? So it's not like I'm out looking for Loch Ness monsters or, or dinosaurs. You know, I'm looking for animals that the world has written off in the last hundred or so years to see if by any chance they're still hiding out in some remote region. And, um, it's, you know, it's, it's a dream come true. It's the exact job that I want to be doing, and uh, it's, I find myself spending a lot of time very deep in, in the field in very, very remote locations, and I couldn't be happier about it. Speaking about locations, though, Santa Barbara's an interesting one in that it's not a um, an area that's necessarily uh, you hear a lot of people that move in there because it's very hard to get homes. It's a very expensive place to live. How did you come to be in Santa Barbara? I came to Santa Barbara in 2005 to start university. I always knew I wanted to be a biologist, and um, I moved here in 2005 to go to UC Santa Barbara, which is one of the best biological schools in the country, and uh, decided I never wanted to leave. So here I am still. I have some ties to Santa Barbara. I had two aunts that lived there since World War II. They've both passed now, but I've been in Santa Barbara a number of times. And, and that's why I knew that it's not necessarily a place that anyone uh, can afford to live, even though it's not really, it's, it's really a small town, but they've just limited the growth a great deal. It's extremely limited. Yeah. Getting permits or anything to build here or to expand is next to impossible, but you know, like you said, it is a very small town, and 
there's every financial echelon of people here from very wealthy to very not. And uh, it's a fantastic community. I play rugby with, you know, and locally I'm heavily involved in the diving community. It's, it's a great group of people and I absolutely love living here. Well, you were born in California, is that right? That's correct. And how is it that you ended up in Africa, and specifically Zimbabwe? Well, my family is Zimbabwean. I'm a sixth-generation Zimbabwean, and uh, my dad was American. So what happened was we came over here. I was born in America, and at a very young age, I think I was only six or eight weeks old, I was flown back to Zimbabwe so that I could actually have an American passport. And having an American parent and a Zimbabwean parent, that wasn't an issue. So it was... uh, was the right call because I'm lucky to be here today. Well, let's talk about uh, how you're a sixth-generation Zimbabwean and your family history there. That must have come through your mother's side. That's correct. And they came from um, from what country to come to Zimbabwe? They're of English descent. And how is it they came to be there? Uh, they were among the first groups of explorers that, you know, started pioneering going to Zimbabwe, you know, back in the days of the colonies. Uh, Zimbabwe was, of course, at that time, a English colony. It was Rhodesia. And my great, 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 however many generations ago, grandparents uh, moved to Zimbabwe to get out of the UK and find a life of sunshine and adventure and all the good things that come from living in Africa. Were they agriculturalists? I wouldn't know that far, that long back in my history, to be honest. Um, I think everybody was to uh, to an extent when they first moved out there. I mean, it was mostly farm life in Rhodesia. Um, but honestly, six generations ago, it's so far removed from me that I don't know what they did. How is it that your father came to um, Zimbabwe? Well, my mother was uh, traveling after university, and she met my father in San Francisco, and they got married. And then... Um, Together, they decided to move back to Zimbabwe to, my dad wanted to start a business there, and they wanted to raise kids the way my mom had been raised, you know, in that incredible Zimbabwe farm life. And so uh, they moved back there before I was born. And then, of course, as I said, I came over just to be born in the U.S. Did your father, um, was he, did he have any rural background? Nope. He's a city boy from San Francisco. That had to be odd, uh, difficult. Um, I wouldn't know, actually. Uh, I, my father passed away when I was eight years old, so I'm not actually too sure. Um, that being said, uh, I, I imagine it wasn't the easiest transition from him, for him, but uh, he had a lot of support. There was a very, very rich community of support in uh, rural Zimbabwe, and, of course, my mom's family was very familiar with it, so I'm not entirely sure, but I, I think um, it was probably a bit of a shock for him. So let's talk about what home life looks like in Zimbabwe. Uh, did you live in a close community of uh, white farmers? I did. I did indeed. Um, you know, we lived on a very small farm, 200 acres, in the uh, Shamba district, which was a very, very prosperous district. Our neighbors on one side were the biggest tobacco farm in the world at one time, so you know, to have our tiny little plot was tiny, was really minute, but the community was fantastic. You know, grow anybody, any listeners that you may have that is familiar with kind of rural African culture, you know, there was a country club, but you 
not the way you think of a country club in America, like a true country club, a, a, a club out in the middle of the country where people go and meet up. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of support there. My, my nearest neighbor was a 30-minute drive away on my tiny little Wee 50 motorcycle and, you know, my best friend. And, yeah, it was a great community of people, and there was, there was no better way to grow up. Uh, so were you mainly white people growing um, up together, or were you interracial? Oh, no, it was a huge mix. Um, I mean, you know, my my school is 50, 50 uh, I don't know what the exact stats are, but 50% white, 50-ish percent black, um, you know, within a smattering of Indian and Asian. And no, it was a huge mix. It was very, it was not at all segregated. Um, you know, I had we had 200 workers that lived on our farm, and they, they all, um, you know, had children. And their, the workers' children were my best friends growing up, you know. One night they would spend in my, you know, house, which was the big main farmhouse, and other nights I would sleep on the floor of their mud hut. So, yeah, it was a very mixed, uh, mixed racially, if you will. And what did your farm raise? Uh, we did a number of things, but we did small crops that were generally high-end crops. Our main one was Ulstermeria flowers, which we used to export to Neiman Marcus in the U.K., Hmm. I mean, with 200 workers on 200 acres, it was obviously labor intense. Yeah, well, keep in mind, you know, in the time and place that I grew up, machinery was far less of an option. You know, here in the U.S., I worked on a huge 333,000-acre ranch uh, outside of Elko, Nevada, and that had six employees. And the reason being there was so much machinery uh, that was capable of doing the jobs that were otherwise, you know, from my experience in Africa, manual labor jobs. So you must have had ample rainfall year-round, or was it irrigated? Uh, both. Um, you know, Harare is the second, which is the capital city of Zimbabwe, and the nearest to where we live. I believe it's the second most mild climate, climate city on Earth next to Quito, Ecuador. So it's a very nice climate. It's actually very similar here to Santa Barbara, um, but a little wetter. Um, where we did have rainfall year-round, of course, there's a rainy season and a dry season. And then, of course, there was irrigation as well for at those times at which there was no rain. Uh, and you grew, and I'm sorry, you said you were able to grow a year round then because the, the climate was so mild? Uh, we grew crops year round. The ultram areas, of course, didn't flower year round. We did have greenhouses and things like that, but we were growing something year round. We also had avocados, we had oranges. Um, you know, we, we something was going on year round, that's for sure. We're visiting with Forrest Galante. He uh, grew up in Zimbabwe and was his, he and his family were forced to leave there when he was a small child. We'll uh, be talking about his life in Africa and what he's doing now. Join us more after the break for On the Front Porch. Hi, this is Kyle Bauer hosting today with Forrest Galante. He is um, actually the host on a animal planet uh, program called extinct or alive he grew up on a farm in zimbabwe and then was forced to leave there when he was about 13 years old for us let's talk about the farm just a bit more um you must have had good roads in and out of the farm if your flowers were being exported nearly year round or how far was it to the airport how far did that how did that work uh from our house to the airport was just about an hour's drive. Uh, the roads were great um, growing up. You know, we had dirt roads on the farm, of course, but then there was a paved road, you know, right outside of our farm, a main highway, in fact. And um, 
funny because I was back there uh, just last year to, in December, um, and the roads are just awful. But growing up, the roads were beautifully maintained. There was no issues at all. Uh, I guess we'll work backwards from this. What year did you leave Zimbabwe? 2001. 2001. And um, there was – the government had changed at that point. Um, uh, they had gotten – well, at some point it was called Rhodesia, and now it's called Zimbabwe. Do you know what year that happened? I believe it was 88. Okay, so it was prior to you leaving. Um yeah. So let's talk about your life just a little bit more. Did you you went to school on your own farm? No, no, no. I went to an all boys, very strict school called St. John's College. First, I went to St. John's Prep, then I went to St. John's College. College where I grew up is not what college is here. College means like an academy type high school. Um, so I went to sometimes I was a weekly boarder, sometimes I was a day scholar. It was only about forty five minutes from uh, our house to to the um, school and so no, I did not. I did not do homeschooling or farm schooling. I went to uh, an old boys private school. And is that common for uh, people? Uh, let's just say of your family and your friends. Uh, it's it's not common for people of my family and my friends. It, it is the expected. It's the only way to really go to school in Zimbabwe. Um, you know, for a proper English education. And you know, the reason being, the government schools are for farm workers, children, and out in the rural communities, you know, most of them don't have proper classrooms. It's sitting outside. It's learning two or three hours a day. Uh, the kids don't have shoes. It's a whole different, you know, it's a whole different thing. If you want a proper education where I grew up, you have to go to a private school. Now, I got the impression, I'm thinking back to when you gave your um, a presentation when I heard it in September, or I'm sorry, in April, uh, you grew up not wearing shoes. <laughs> That's correct. I still remember to this day at age six, the first time I had to put on shoes uh, to go to school. And I had never had a pair of shoes on my feet that I could remember before then. And my mother put them on my sh on my feet before we got in the car to go to school my first day. And I was like, these are awful. Do I have to wear these all day long? And uh, yeah, it took a while to get used to them. That's for sure. And I say that as I walk around barefoot right now. Uh, but you're uh... Your childhood, I got the impression, was in your mind idyllic. Um, it was it was just a wonderful way to grow up. The best. There's no better way to be. You know, to be a young boy growing up on a 200-acre farm with a dam and tons of wildlife and great fishing and amazing friends and a unique culture to be immersed by or immersed in. And then, of course, my family ran safari businesses, so I was always out in the bush, which, as a wildlife biologist, you know, I'm sure that's where it all stemmed from. Um, so it, it, there is no better way to grow up than the way I grew up. Uh, that's the first I'd heard of that. One of your businesses was safari businesses. I understand across uh, that part of Africa, safaris are a major part of income for those countries. That's correct, yeah. Um, you know, it, Southern Africa has a big tourism trade, and that tourism is based almost entirely in safaris. And my family didn't do hunting; they did photographic safaris. But uh, yeah, that was you know that was the other the other half of their business. Were most of their clients from Europe or the U.S.? Uh, it was a healthy mix: European, Australian, um, American. Uh, a pretty pretty healthy mix. Did you have much contact with Americans growing up? Uh, I mean, we're about to get to the point that you're going to move to America. 
did you um, know Americans and know about the lifestyle? Um, you know, having grandparents in the U.S., as a young, young boy, like leading up until ages kind of eight or nine, I used to visit America once every year or so, and it was just daunting and shocking. I mean, I can remember as a kid, you know, they don't really exist anymore, but going into Toys R Us was like just this insane thing. You know, our biggest toy store in Zimbabwe was two sections of a shelf in the grocery store. So to see something like Toys R Us as a little kid or just see these massive buildings or these insane cities and these crazy skylines i mean it was it was overwhelming and overstimulating and i remember as a young boy you know that i was very ever really interested in cities or or kind of infrastructure but coming to america once every few years or so was just the most thrilling exciting thing because it was so different from what i was used to everything was so big here so when you were 13, you were forced to, you and your, your family were forced to relocate. Tell me how that came down. Yeah, so in the early 2000s, President Robert Mugabe, who, you know, is a terrible dictator and was the president of Zimbabwe for a very long time, um, he, uh, he basically began a campaign where anybody who was white that owned land, regardless of how many generations they'd been in the country, uh, if they owned land in the farm, because that was Zimbabwe's biggest economy, was farming, they could basically just be taken regardless of who they were, how much they were producing, etc. And living in a very affluent farming area where we were, because it had such great agricultural soil, um, our area got hit pretty early and it got hit very hard. I mean, there was instances of our neighbors getting shot and our staff getting uh, tortured by the ZANU-PF party. They were getting indoctrinated through torture to try and support the, the president. It was a crazy thing. But, you know, Cal, when you're living in a situation like that, you see these things deteriorating around you, and it's a very African mentality as well, but you certainly don't ever give in or give up. And, and although the situations are getting worse and you're getting shot at regularly and there's all this torture going on and things are becoming more and more dangerous, you don't ever think... Well, one, that it's going to happen to you, or two, that, that you know, you're going to do anything but dig your heels in. Uh, that being said, one day in 2001, came home. Uh, we got followed up the driveway to the house. We got out. We had guns put to our heads and in our mouths and told to leave. Uh, this was about the fourth time they had invaded our farm. Um, it was, you know, mostly kids with AK-47s. And, and to be clear, it was not the farm kids that I grew up with. It was these kind of wild, you know, sort of, rebel-like children that had been congregated and wanted to, to overtake a farm thinking they were going to have this lavish lifestyle. And, uh, yeah, had guns put to our heads and pulled the lead. So we packed up the three suitcases of clothes and exactly 400 U.S. dollars, as Zimbabwe was at that time on the world's trade embargo. And, of course, all of our currency was in Zimbabwean dollars, so it was useless in America. And we, we left our 6,000-square-foot home and our beautiful farm and our safari businesses and everything behind and moved into a one-bedroom apartment in Oakland, California. So quite a culture shock. Now, when you say we, uh, how many of you relocated to Oakland? My mother, my sister, and I. And is your sister younger or older? She's younger. Did she uh, uh, have a U.S. citizenship as well? Same, same thing as me. Came over for birth, got a passport, had an American father, et cetera, and then, and then went back. And that was pivotal in what happened at that time, wasn't it not? Certainly. I, I think, you know, had 
my mother not had a green card, my dad not been American, uh, you know, my sister and I not being American, I don't know how that would have shaken out, but I think it would have been a lot worse for us. And I will say I am exceedingly grateful for America because of it, not only because it literally saved us from a disastrous situation, but it's afforded me the opportunities to create my own path and my own career, which I absolutely love. So, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful place. Did you have extended family that uh, left at the same time, uh, aunts, uncles, grandmas, grandpas? Nope. None of that. It was, it was just you guys then? Just us. Okay. You know, the $400 really struck me. Um and, you know, I don't, I mean, you became a refugee literally overnight. Did you fly to the U.S. Right. or how did you get here? And you wouldn't have had a visa at that point. Okay. Well, we didn't need visas <clears throat> because my mother had a green card and um, my sister and I were at American Passport. Um, we were, we were refugees. Uh, I don't know if we were technically on paper refugees, but we were refugees. We were political refugees in the sense of we had nowhere, no place in our own country, um, uh, at least the one we'd grown up in. And yeah, we came over with 400 bucks. We flew here. There's no other way to get get here from Zimbabwe. Um, you know, at that time, we were still able to buy airline tickets through Zimbabwe Air, Air Zimbabwe, with Zimbabwean dollars. So we had the affluency in which to buy the tickets to get to America. We just had nothing when we landed here. And how is it you chose Oakland, California? Well, my dad was from San Francisco, and I think the cheapest, best tickets my mom could find was into San Francisco, and we landed with no idea what we were going to do or how we were going to do it. And my mom had an, a distant friend who um, kind of helped us. We stayed, you know, slept on her floor and everything else for a while until we found this tiny little uh, apart, one-bedroom apartment in Oakland to uh, move into for, for the time span while we got, you know, uh, welfare and things like that kind of set up to try and get on our feet. We're visiting with Forrest Galante today. He is the host of an Animal Planet uh, program called Extinct or Alive. Grew up as a farm kid in Zimbabwe, and then one day they had 24 hours to get out of the country. Join us after the break for more on the front porch. Welcome back to On the Front Porch. We're visiting with Forrest Galante today. Uh, we have traced his life from Zimbabwe as a farm kid there. Uh, when we went to the break, they had just, he and his mother and his sister had just relocated. Let me see. You would have been about 13, you said, when you relocated? That's right. And uh, so you relocated to Oakland, California because you had some contacts there. Um, so let's talk about you ended up uh, able to find a place to live. You Did you stay in that area to go to school then, I mean, as a high school student? Um, geez, I almost don't even remember. But, yeah, so we, we moved into Oakland. We were there very temporarily. It was a very, very rough area, of course, you know, as the cheapest areas are, which you have to stay in in a situation like that. And we were there for not a long time. Um, I can't remember the exact amount of time. But what happened was, uh, we found out that my aunt had a friend who was willing to lend us a car in Los Angeles. So we had to get to Los Angeles. So the three of us hopped on a bus. Uh, I, we went down to Los Angeles, picked up the car, and started driving back to Oakland. And on the way back to Oakland, we hit the central coast. We hit a tiny little surfing town called Cayucas, California, population 600, I believe, but I'd have to check that. I mean, it's tiny. 
And, um, and it was one of the rare days in Central California where it was 80 degrees, beautiful, the sea was blue, there was no fog, nothing else. And my mom said, this is where, this is a much better place for you kids to be. You know, Forrest can continue being a wild man and run up and down the beach and chase the ocean. And there's real schools and it's not, you know, it's not Oakland where you can hear gunshots out of your crappy apartment every night. So we, uh, we figured out a way to move down there. And to be honest, at 13, I'm not sure how my mom managed to pull it out, but we did. Got in a car, went down there. Um, you know, it was a mix of sleeping on couches and staying in, in people's homes and, like, all kinds of things until we managed to kind of get on our feet a little bit. My mom picked up a job as uh, a hostess at a restaurant, which for a woman who had owned basically an empire in Africa to a hostess at a restaurant was quite a jump. And, uh, and then I started school there. That was exactly where I was going, thinking about your mother and, and how hard it, I mean, it was hard on you, but on her, it had to be just, uh, crushing. Certainly. Yeah, no, I think, you know, at age 13 and age, uh, 11, as my sister would have been, the toll is much harder on, you know, my adult mother with no support network and, of course, no finances than it is, and two young children than it is on the kids themselves, you know, to us. But it was all new and somewhat exciting and a bit of an adventure, and that was thanks to my mom making it seem that way, you know, and trying to make it fun and trying to, like, you know, oh, look at this, the beach. You guys aren't used to the beach, you know, that kind of stuff. And But for my mom, I think it was extremely difficult. So uh, you spent your the rest of your high school years there? I did. Um, I did a placement test in coming from such a good school in Zimbabwe. I placed as a senior at age 13, um, but in California, you can't skip three grades. You can only skip two. So I skipped two grades. I started at age 13. I think I turned 14 at that time. At age 14, I started as a junior in high school, I believe. Did a year and a half of high school there, graduated, and um Wanted to be a biologist, wanted to play rugby, and the school that afforded me the best opportunities for both was uh, UC Santa Barbara. So I managed to get in there, and then I up and moved to where I am today, Santa Barbara, California. Wow, you found a home in a hurry, because that village, how far would that have been from Santa Barbara? About It's about two and a half hours. Oh, it's, it's a ways then. Okay, it's a ways. All right. Yeah. Um, the, your mother, does she continue to live in that same town? Nope. She, uh, she started coming and visiting in Santa Barbara where I was, saw what a wonderful town it was. Um, and then my sister got a full scholarship to a high school near Santa Barbara. So she moved uh, to the area, not Santa Barbara itself, but to a very small town that's kind of a suburb of Santa Barbara called Carpinteria. So you um, uh, graduated from high school very young and went on to college. So did you end up graduating from college early as well i did i graduated from college at age 20 so does that make for difficult time i mean you'll be going that early and being that much ahead of the curve i mean you're you now have a degree at 20 years old with a a a biology degree uh you said wildlife biology right so my are, emphasis is in wildlife, but yeah, it's, it's all biology, really. So, are there people ready to hire you at that age? Uh, nope, <laughs> there sure aren't. <laughs> um, I uh, I've never really taken a traditional path, Kyle. I uh, when I was in college, um, having this foundational knowledge of wildlife and the outdoors, I started my own business, 
which I called an adventure science business, where I used to take local kids in Santa Barbara on field trips around Santa Barbara because it's a beautiful area with great weather year-round to catch snakes and see turtles and go fishing and go snorkeling and all the stuff that, you know, rich, spoiled kids from Santa Barbara don't get to do very often. And uh, my business was, was, it certainly wasn't a booming giant business, but it was successful enough to, you know, put me through college and get me set up here in Santa Barbara. And um, as soon as I graduated at age 20, I sold that business and I traveled uh, with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. I traveled for 14 months uh, to 28 countries around the world chasing wildlife after college. How do you, how do you work the finances out on that? Like I said, I started that business, and uh, it did well enough to help get me get me all the way through that. Okay. And so 28 countries, was this part of a plan, or was it really just seeing what come up next? Um, you know, I was a little bit of a wild kid, especially uh, after leaving Zimbabwe and going through college. I got in trouble a lot. I was always running away. And then you don't run, not running away in the sense that people think of on TV more like, I disappear for a week at a time because I just go out into the into the foothills of California by myself, and you know I just I, I was kind of still looking for an escape and chasing wildlife and all the things all the space that I was used to. So that's a long-winded way of saying it was an open-ended uh, trip with no real plans other than I wanted to see some of the world's most beautiful places and some great wildlife. Now, you ended up in the ocean at some point, uh, I mean, kind of as an emphasis in that direction. Yeah, so my degrees from UCSD were, I had special emphasis in herpetology, which is the study of reptiles and amphibians, and marine biology, the study of ocean organisms. So, um, yeah, and I've done, you know, I continue to do, I just got back from Mexico yesterday, actually, and continue to do a ton of uh, free diving and spearfishing. I love harvesting my own food. Uh, the ocean has really afforded me a reconnection with nature in California, which is very tame, you know, on, on land, and Africa was not. But you jump in the ocean in Southern California, and there's great white sharks and makos and seals and huge fish and, you know, all kinds of exciting stuff. So that was kind of my escape. When I left the bush in Africa, I migrated to the ocean in California for that, that bit of wild. I, I don't think people out here, particularly all of us, understand free diving. Can you tell us what, uh, when you do free diving and fishing, what that looks like and and how you do that? Sure. So what I do is called breath hold free diving, and what that means is I wear a mask and snorkel, a wetsuit and a pair of fins, and nothing else, no scuba equipment. I've trained myself for more than 10 years now to be able to hold my breath for up to five minutes. I take in a big breath. And I dive down on that breath, and uh, I hunt for fish up to depths of about 100 feet uh, using a basically underwater crossbow, a, a spear gun. And I look for fish and, you know, look for certain good species of fish and harvest them with the spear and fight them back to the surface, surface and take them home and eat them. Being 100 feet, does your body come acclimated, or do you have to come up slowly? No, so if you're on scuba... When you're adding oxygen to your blood, you have to come up slowly. When you're free diving, because the volume of air that you take in at the surface uh, is constant, you know, you take in a certain volume at the surface and you return to the surface with that same volume, you can come up at whatever speed you like. There's no risk of uh, getting getting bent or getting nitrogen narcosis, as they call it in scuba diving. Well, I've done a little bit of, I guess I'll call it deep sea fishing. I'll just say fishing in the ocean. And um, when you pull fish up from down 100 feet, they sometimes deform a bit, but you don't have any problem with that. 
Uh, correct. Free divers do not face that problem. That's amazing. And you can hold your breath five minutes? I can, yeah. That's that's bizarre, i got to tell you. Uh, <laughs> you know, you can make a lot of money in a bar doing that, I'd think, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so that would, be, uh, that would be a hard one to prove. <laughs> so I... Um, I'm thinking back to your presentation in April, um, all of, the, of your free diving and your um, spearfishing led you in a direction. Um, just touch on it just a bit, and then we'll go to a break. Uh, yeah, I mean, basically, you know, I I started this whole free diving spearfishing thing. I came back from traveling around the world. I was already free diving and spearfishing. And I began to make a name for myself in that community. You know, this, this crazy young kid who could dive really deep and shuttle these big fish. And, and at the same time was still being a field biologist. So I began to make a name simultaneously for myself there. And I married the two. You know, I would do certain biological research projects with sharks and, and seabirds uh, where I would free dive because of my, my physical capabilities. And then, of course, my scientific background. And I slowly began to gain, garner this reputation as this uh, this wildlife biologist that you know did these extreme things and uh, saw a very tiny window to capitalize on from there, and that's kind of what launched my career. We're visiting with Forrest Galante. He is a wildlife biologist, marine biologist, if you will, and he is a uh, host of an Animal Planet program called Extinct or Alive. Grew up on a farm in Zimbabwe. Join us after the break where we talk with Forrest on the one last segment. Hi, this is Kyle Bauer, and this is in our final segment of On the Front Porch, visited, visiting with Forrest Galante. We went to the break, uh, Forrest. We're talking about your free diving, spearfishing, and your marine biologist. Uh, is there any part of that that is contrary, if you will? I notice you harvest fish. I mean, you, I mean, obviously, that's what we talk about is animal agriculture people. We harvest fish. Sure. We use them. Uh, for our own nourishment, is there any part of the marine biology industry that sees those as contrary points of view? I mean, there are, uh, you know, and those people are like your PETA people and the people that don't really understand the bigger picture with regards to global health. And the reality is what I do, free dive spearfishing, is the most sustainable form of fishing in the world, right? There's zero bycatch. I've never pulled up a fish I didn't mean to shoot. Um, I leave no carbon footprint. I'm not leaving line in the water or lures behind or nets or, you know, any of those things. It's the most sustainable form of fishing there is. And, and of course, fishing is the most sustainable form of gathering uh, uh, animal proteins. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's very good for the planet. Uh, if you're someone like myself who doesn't want to be a vegetarian or a vegan and needs animal protein. And, of course, you know, when I meet these contrarians, in the wildlife community, or like, how can you say you love animals and go, go out and kill fish? I just explain it like that. You know, I say this is good for the planet, it's good for me, and I love doing it, frankly. And and I'm certainly, you know, certainly never going to apologize for that. You know, you can offer a point of view that we don't get much access to out here. We read a lot about how bad plastics are in the ocean, and uh, we see a lot about that. Have you had personal experience with that? Tons. And it's, it's absolutely awful. You know, what you read about is, is accurate. Of course, there's tons of ecophobia where people are being alarmist and putting up crazy headlines and things like that. But it's, it's, it's awful. It's horrendous. I mean, you, uh, you know, you go to certain places in Indonesia or 
certain areas in Mexico where ocean currents lead, you know, from multiple offshore directions into a single beach, and the beach itself is just littered in plastic. I mean, it's horrendous. And uh, it's, it's an awful problem that is a real global problem. But we're fortunate in the U.S. that people are at least aware to it. They seem to be making a difference. You know, little things help. If you don't let balloons go into the environment, they don't wash up in the ocean for sea turtles to eat them. And uh, at least in my time in California, in the last 15 or so years that I've spent a lot of time in the ocean, I have certainly seen a reduction in ocean plastics. So I think, you know, there's a bit of a good good message there. Well, I'm glad I asked it because in, in all candor, I, I trust your viewpoint more than, um, than just the general news because I never know where that viewpoint's coming from. And I appreciate Certainly. you commenting on that. So how did you end up with Animal Planet? Well, like I said before the break, I was uh, making a name for myself in this wildlife world in Southern California. And uh, it's funny. It's almost two different things converge. One day I got home from a long biological contract. I think it was something terrible like counting ants or doing weed extraction. I mean, something really heinously boring. And um, got home, plopped down on the couch as one does, and my, my fiancé or girlfriend, whatever she was at the time, my wife now says, uh, look at this weird show. You should do this. And it's Naked and Afraid. It's a survival show on Discovery Channel. And I'm like, oh, man, that's, that's really silly. But you're right. Like, I've, you know, I've been practicing primitive survival since I was a little kid because it affords me the means to spend a lot of time in the field without taking a lot of equipment with me. So I end up going on Discovery, doing Naked and Afraid, doing exceedingly well. In fact, I scored the highest uh, survival rating in the show's history. And when I came off of that, just like everybody that does it of the 250 or so people that have done it now, you get your five minutes of fame, right, where people, reporters reach out to you and they ask you how your experience was. And what I did is every time a reporter would reach out to me, they'd say, tell me about Naked Afraid. Tell me about being naked and survival and blah, blah. I'd say, eh, no, thank you. They'd be like, what do you mean? Like, well, I don't want to talk about Naked Afraid. That was just something I did for fun. If you want to talk to me, I'll tell you about wildlife. I'll tell you about conservation and biology. I'll show you some pictures of me working hands-on with sharks or, you know, working with big cats or tell you about some of the ecological problems that we're facing. And all of a sudden, these reporters went, oh, that's actually pretty cool. Yeah, tell me about that. And, um... You know, that snowballed into this relatively large media presence of stories about me being this renegade wildlife biologist. And um, and then I got linked up with a guy who said, hey, I want to make a TV show. You got any ideas? And in his credit, it was mostly his idea. But together, we came up with Extinctor Alive and presented it to Animal Planet. And uh, here we are five years later. And how many programs do you shoot a year or episodes? I just got back from an eight-month travel season. Um, I've been on the road for nearly eight months straight. We've been to 12 different countries. Uh, I spend nearly a month in each location. You can do the math on that. Um, and I am in my. I just finished shooting 10 episodes uh, for the second season of my show. Well, that's because it take. After all, you're looking for animals that are supposed to be extinct. So it's not like you can breeze in and film for a day. That's for sure. <laughs> that is for sure. We go to some very, very difficult locations. I've talked to multiple people who say the job that we do for television is by far the hardest job on television. You know, we're not on a boat fishing for crabs. We're not in a haircutting salon or a Kardashian or whatever you want. We are going into the most remote, isolated places in the world looking for evidence that these animals that the world has written off as gone could still be there. If you think about planet Earth and you think about the fact that it took them, I believe, 
something like six months to get that single shot of a clouded leopard, a known animal that isn't extinct, and it took them eight months to get a shot of it. You know, I have basically a month to find something that's much, 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 much more rare than that animal if it does even still exist. So, you know, we, we really try and narrow it down, and, and that is fortunately – you know, where my skill set comes into play, but it is a very, very hard time. We go in never expecting to find anything, but hoping for the best, and we've had some huge successes. You've got to have a fairly good-sized research crew, I mean, telling you where to go and, I mean, and deciding whether this is something that's worth pursuing or not. I'll call them back office people. Uh, nope, that is all me. It's all you. And, it's all me. It's all my contacts from wildlife work around the world, from the times I traveled, uh, re- just doing research, reaching out to people. I do have an office support staff. They're fantastic, but they handle logistics. I do all the research. I decide where we go, when we go, how we do it. You know, you have to take into account environmental conditions. Is it dry season? Is it wet season? Does the animal need water? Is it better to find it in the dry season? You know, it's a lot of factors come into play, and you have to juggle all of this into a schedule. And then you have to turn it into a production. So it's uh, it's a lot of things. So five seasons, are you running out of extinct animals to go look for? Uh, two seasons, actually. Just finished oh. my second season. Oh, um, okay. All right. That's all right. And uh, we're not. You know, animals go extinct at a rate of about 2,000 per year. So sadly, we are never going to run out of animals to go looking for. And so this, the ones you decide to go look for, about what percentage do you actually find um, that a, a living species? Oh, boy, that's hard to, to delineate it as a percentage. I mean, also with season two right around the corner, uh, I'm not allowed to say what, what successes we've had and what we haven't yet because that needs to be announced on Animal Planet. Sure. I will say that, you know, the one that you may have seen that the whole world saw was our discovery of the Fernandina giant tortoise, a huge, huge tortoise believed extinct for 110 years that I found on an active volcano way out in the Galapagos. Crazy, crazy expedition. And that made global news because we actually brought the animal back to a breeding facility. Um, But, uh, you know, our success rate is much, much higher than someone would expect for something that should be deemed as a 0% chance of success. So when does this show uh, play? Does it have a normal slot uh, once a week, or when does it play? Yeah, so Season 1 is available on Animal Planet Go at any time. It's available on your on-demand on Animal Planet, and it's on Amazon and YouTube, I believe. Season 2 will premiere October 11th, um, and I believe that's a Friday night, I want to say 9 p.m., and it's, uh, it's a weekly show, you know, when it starts coming out in October. It'll be on every Friday for 10 weeks. And then, of course, you can catch up and binge on the first season anytime. And uh, it's a really fun, really informative, non-preachy, enjoyable adventure show for anybody that likes animals. You know, I, I know you don't want to talk about Naked and Afraid, but I did go look up your show and watch it. And I was um, amazed, amused at how you just didn't seem to feel pressure um, you know, whatever happened was just normal. And, and quite honestly, you were with a horrendously poor partner on that show. Um, so is that part of your success is just taking whatever is thrown at you as normal or reasonable? Absolutely. I mean, look, when you've had a gun shoved in your mouth and forced off of the home and life that you've known at age 13 and have to reset everything, you know, going out and 
you know, crying about spilt milk, having a shelter fall down or getting a little bit of rain, nothing, you know, <laughs> putting yourself in a naked and afraid situation, doing a survival challenge for 21 days. It's great. It's, it's, you know, if you don't enjoy it, what's the point of doing it? And uh, that's the way I look at, at everything. That's the way I look at making television. That's the way I look at uh, shooting our shows for Extinct or Live and doing those expeditions looking for those animals. Of course, I'm very focused. It's, it's all it's the important. The importance of the work cannot be understated. But you just got to roll with the punches. If you don't, you'll drive yourself crazy. You'll have a meltdown like my partner did. You know, you'll you'll just freak out and you'll never get through it. So, uh, you know, I can tell you what I do on my show with animals on it now, even though we're closed, is way harder than 21 days of hanging out in the bush. You know, sitting around naked and eating coconuts. You're visiting with Forrest Galante. Uh, he is a wildlife biologist, grew up on a farm in Zimbabwe, left there when 13, has become world-recognized for his work with uh, wildlife around the world. This is Kyle Bauer on On the Front Porch.